Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. I'm honored you are joining me here today. I wanted to share some exciting news with you guys that the podcast has now had over half a million downloads worldwide, and I wanted to thank you all for your continued support. And before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to quickly remind you guys to leave me a positive review on the podcast as this really helps boost me in the chart ratings, as does your subscription to the podcast. So please take a moment to pause this episode and hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating or review. Thank you so much for your support, guys, and I'm excited to bring you this episode today on bariatric surgery. We're joined by advanced accredited practicing dietitian, Amanda Clark, who has over 25 years experience in weight management and is a specialized bariatric dietitian. Amanda's private practice is Great Ideas in Nutrition on the lower Gold Coast here in Queensland, Australia, and she is the creator of Portion Perfection, a set of tools aimed at making eating the right amount of food for weight management easier, no matter what your needs. We begin this podcast with Amanda's tips and observations about the things people tend to do wrong when it comes to sustainable weight loss. We then explain to our listeners what bariatric surgery is, how it works, who it might be appropriate for, some positives about weight loss surgery, some negatives about bariatric surgery, and things people really need to consider before having a bariatric surgery procedure. We also talk about binge eating disorder, psychology input, and post-op requirements. Finally, we discuss what to do if someone has had bariatric surgery and their weight loss has stalled or they've regained weight, and more about her Portion Perfection range, which you can find on Instagram, at Portion Perfection. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and let's get started with today's episode with Amanda, all about weight loss and bariatric surgery. Welcome to the podcast today, Amanda. We're really excited to have you on chatting all things healthy weight loss and bariatric surgery. Oh, thanks so much, Leanne. Look, I, I feel really privileged to be here because you've you've really interviewed some of the greats in nutrition. So I feel proud to sit amongst them. Thank you. And we are very excited to have you on today and very privileged as well to have you on today because you really truly are an expert in this area. And I've got some really hard hitting questions for you today. So I hope to be able to provide our listeners with a great episode, um, you know, pros, cons, all about bariatric surgery because I've certainly noticed the amount of questions that I get asked on a day-to-day basis has um, it been a lot more recently than it has in the last few years. So I think a lot more people are really sort of learning about it, considering it, weighing up the pros and cons. So I'm really excited about our chat today. Yeah, great. Wonderful. Well, do you want to start us off, Amanda, by um, telling our listeners at home a little bit more about yourself and how you came to uh, work in the space of weight loss and bariatric surgery? Well, I've been practicing for over 25 years and about 20 years, a bariatric surgery um, uh, practice started up in our area. And, you know, bariatric surgery was relatively new at that point. There was not many dietitians in that space. And my background was in weight management and disordered eating. So really, it was going to be my people who were going to be looking down the path of bariatric surgery. And so I wanted to be there for them to make sure that this went well for them uh, from my perspective. 
Wonderful. So it's, I guess, obviously a sort of a passionate area around yourself. You're you're taking these clients through that entire journey because it's not like they just make that decision and it's it's an easy fix. It's really it is really a journey, isn't it? Over time, it is. And so many of the people who go through for bariatric surgery, I've seen over the years, mm. and I've seen what they've tried to do. I understand what their struggles are and whether or not surgery may be beneficial for them. Mm, wonderful. Well, I mean, let's start with, I guess, the basics of a healthy lifestyle and weight loss. In your experience from seeing these clients across many, many years, um, what are sort of two or three big things that you see a lot of people doing, for lack of a better word, wrong when it comes to weight loss? What are things that people really um, are doing that they probably shouldn't be doing? <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people are making unsustainable changes. Mm. I really think that you need to be able to sign on the dotted line to say, yep, I could do this forever. So it needs to be something that you're happy with. Um, I think also people expect too much, maybe too much too quickly. They they hoped that they could just do it for a short period of time, that achieve what they want to achieve and all the problems would be over. Um, and, and I think the third thing that I see a lot of is the, what the hell approach or what the hell effect, Mm. which you might be familiar with, which is when one thing goes wrong, um, the feeling like it's all over, Mm -hmm. blow it, throw it in. Mm -hmm. We'll start again when we've got the motivation to start again. Definitely. And that's something I see time and time again. And on this podcast, uh, my mantra for life is what I call 10% better. So it's, it's you know, we have multiple opportunities to eat throughout the day. Most people will eat three, four, five, six meals and snacks throughout the day. So just because one of them is a little bit off track or you have cake for somebody's birthday or you have a little too much chocolate, don't throw in the towel because you have so many other wonderful opportunities to nourish your body throughout the day as well. So we have talked about that um, on the podcast quite extensively as well. And I'm in complete agreement that that's something that so many people just, they think it's all or nothing, don't they? I have to be perfect and be completely on track or it's all over. Yeah, I think it's that self-talk um, that of beating yourself up when when you don't follow through with your strong convictions mm. um, that it, we need to loosen that. We need to f- make that a bit more flexible. Mm. And another thing that you mentioned, which I think is so important as well, was just wanting to do it for a short amount of time. You know, people want to do the strictest thing for the shortest amount of time ever and forget about it. And then they realize that, okay, they lost the five kilos, they lost the 10 kilos, then they revert back to their old eating behaviors and all the weight starts to come back on again. And they think, oh, what do I do now? Like, how do I actually sustain this? And I guess that question so often and I say well how did you lose the weight to begin with you need to be able to sustain the same sort of behaviors and if you're doubling your exercise and halving your eating and you're starving and you're exhausted is that really sustainable are you going to be able to continue with that for the next 12 months 12 years kind of thing yeah and I think the problem there is you then feel like you failed Mm. but um the the approach wasn't wasn't the best approach. Definitely. And, you know, social media, even things like magazines where it's like lose five kilos by Friday, that all does not help, does it, when it comes to thinking about realistic expectations for weight loss? Yeah, absolutely not. You know, I guess it's a it's a boring magazine that just gives you the same sensible ideas all the time, which is why people really want something new, something interesting, something uh, breakthrough that's um, going to do something quickly. Mm. Well, let's talk about new, interesting and positive, healthy habits. For our listeners at home, if someone's goal was weight loss in a healthy way, that they actually wanted to do it in a sustainable way, what would be your top two to three behaviors or strategies that you would suggest that they start working on um, before sort of anything else? Well, 
The very first thing I'd say is review the size of your plates, your bowls, your glasses, your mugs, and even your cutlery, Mm. because it's been very clearly proven that the bigger the dinner plate you use, the more food you automatically put on there. Mm -hmm. And the more food that's on your plate, the more you eat. So basically bigger plates equal bigger bodies, but that applies to so many other things, including our breakfast bowls and our mugs and our glasses. You know, we even as dietitians, we think we're too clever for that, that we know about this, but <laughs> it's it's happening subconsciously subconsciously. So we want our subconscious mind working for us, not against us. Yeah. Isn't that funny that you mentioned that? Because in our house, we have two drawers and it's like, we have all our normal cutlery, day-to-day cutlery in the top drawer. And at the bottom, we have all our fancy sort of dinnerware cutlery. If we have some people over, we get out the fancy cutlery and we've got entree books in there. And the other day we just, uh, my partner and I had both had a super busy week. We hadn't washed, we hadn't stacked the dishwasher properly. We ran out of forks. And so I reached into the other cupboard and grabbed an entree fork and I noticed it almost automatically. I was like, this fork is a lot smaller. And even when I was eating, I was really trying to do the complete opposite of what we recommend and really eat quickly to, to, you know, get some lunch in between clients. And I noticed (laughs) that I just couldn't physically eat as fast because my fork was smaller. So isn't that funny that I wasn't even thinking about that or focusing on weight loss at all, but I consciously thought to myself, oh, I'm not able to eat as fast. And this fork is a lot smaller than what I'm used to. So I can see how that would have a, a really positive um, effect if someone's goal was weight loss without having to obsess about cutting things out or counting calories or anything like that. Yeah. So it's kind of one thing, if you can set up that, then it it just changes things without you having to deliberately do something. Mm. Um the second thing would be to clear your environment of things that you're you you would benefit from eating less of. So as humans, we seem to have a limited ability to stop the food in our vicinity getting into our mouths. So <laughs> um, I, I'll never forget that whenever I run mindful eating exercises with a group, mm-hmm. and I used to do this at a local hospital regularly, and I'd have a, a, a morsel of food, so it might be a, a segment of of mandarin or a, a cashew nut or a blueberry or something. And you'd explain that I'm going to hand out this piece of food and then we're going to do this mindful eating exercise with it. So you hand out the food, you get back to start the group and <gasps> there's panic in the audience because 10% of the audience have already eaten the piece of food. <laughs> and I think that's just um, completely mindless eating that we're really used to, that if there's food in our hand, it goes in our mouth without thinking about it. We've swallowed it. We we haven't thought about it. So, you know, none of those people wanted to eat that food before. Well, mm. none of them intended to eat the food before we started mm-hmm. the exercise, but about one in 10 have. So interesting, isn't it? And just like how powerful out of sight, out of mind is as well. You know, I have a, a good friend of mine. Um, She has a big sort of like lolly jar on her kitchen counter. And she's saying to me, like she gets regular guests, like her parents stop over her, her parents, um, her mother-in-law comes over. She's got, you know, siblings with kids, that sort of thing. And she's always got this lolly jar because it makes everybody else happy. And I was trying to explain to her, like, that's okay to have, but it's best to stay in the pantry because her goal is to stay healthy and to lose a little bit of weight. And I said, the amount of times that you see that lily jar throughout the day, you know, you've only got so many times your brain can go, mm, maybe not, probably probably don't need it, that sort of thing. If you're seeing that lily jar 20, 30 times a day, you're going to start dipping into that. So I sort of said to her, pop it in the pantry until your guests do come over and then bring it out, you know, an hour before they come over is going to be a lot more conducive to living a healthy lifestyle than having it there constantly, isn't it? 
Yeah, put it put it right at the top, put it behind, get it out of view. <laughs> exactly. Now, I'd love for you to, um, I guess, explain to our listeners a little bit more about bariatric surgery, because I'm sure that we're sort of aware of what this concept is, but I'm not sure a lot of our listeners at home really understand what bariatric surgery is. So can we start by explaining for our listeners exactly what is bariatric surgery and how does it work? Yeah. So I guess bariatric surgery is a procedure that changes your anatomy in some way to reduce your weight. Um, So they generally work in three ways. The first is uh, a reduction in your stomach capacity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got a vagus nerve that runs between your stomach and your brain. And part of that message of satisfaction comes from the tension in the stomach wall. So if you have a large stomach and you eat half a sandwich, there's not going to be any tension in that stomach wall. It's still a big flopsy bag. And so there is no strong message to your brain to say, look, that's enough. So the surgery is reducing the size of that stomach so that you do get strong stomach tension after half a sandwich and you do get a strong message of satisfaction. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second component is malabsorption, which applies to some surgeries and not others. Um, I would actually say that even some of the surgeries that are not considered to be a malabsorptive surgery because they just involve reduction of the stomach and not any bypassing of the intestine, which is where you do most of your absorption. I would still say that they have a malabsorptive component and it's not necessarily malabsorption of calories but definitely malabsorption of nutrients Mm. because if you've got a smaller stomach, you've also got less stomach acid. And as you know, stomach acid is an important part of digestion and uh, absorption and solubilization of some of the nutrients that we need to absorb. So um, some surgeries, malabsorption of calories by missing out on some of the absorptive pathway of the small intestine. And then the third component is magic Um, and that is not fully understood how uh, this component of bariatric surgery works. The first two are fairly clear-cut. The third one changes our biochemistry in some way and it's to do with the appetite hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, Roux-en-Wide gastric bypass can Uh, resolve diabetes, type 2 diabetes, virtually instantaneously. So that effect has not come from weight reduction. It's come from something else. It's come from the change in the anatomy. So bariatric surgery is also becoming known as metabolic surgery Mm -hmm. because of this effect that it can have on, um, on our insulin sensitivity and the way our metabolism functions. So I still call that magic. There are theories on how it works and it's to do with um, the food arriving further down in your intestine before it normally would and therefore releasing some of these hormones earlier uh, after eating that uh, has some component. And some component, um, because it's bypass surgery, Some component may be that we're not actually coming into contact with the early part of the intestine, that that's also changing some of the the signaling. But um, 
it's not fully understood just yet. Mm, so interesting. And I actually, before I left the hospital, I used to work in one of the um, metabolic clinics and it was a big one linked to PA where they're actually starting to do some publicly funded bariatric surgery, um, which was a big sort of uh, hoo-ha in itself. Um, but most of them were, um, you know, gastric bypasses. And yeah, some of them were purely because of such poorly controlled diabetes that people were at risk of losing limbs and that sort of thing. So surgeons were really pushing for that. They Some, some of those clients weren't necessarily that overweight. Um, they just had really, really poorly controlled diabetes and that sort of thing. So it is a really interesting sort of um, concept. They just don't really have the research or the, or the science to sort of state, as you mentioned, why exactly that happens. But metabolically, it can be helpful for a lot of people, can't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, diabetes has such uh, negative consequences on so many parts of people's lives mm. that, uh, you know, if this is a solution for that, um, regardless of the weight loss effect, the um, the a surgery that can resolve diabetes is golden. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. I've definitely seen um, some of the very, very negative effects to some of the very poorly controlled diabetic patients from my time in the hospital. It's quite sad. Yeah. Um, so with bariatric surgery, there are many different kinds, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, um, you know, know of somebody who's had, you know, like a, a band in the past or something like that. So as you've mentioned, like something like a Ruin Wire, we've come a long way. These these are newer types of surgeries. Can you explain for our listeners at home the different types of bariatric surgeries and why one might be more beneficial for another as I'm sure that a lot of listeners have seen people with a band but over time the bands loosen they slip that sort of thing and, and the weight comes all back on again so why might one surgery be a little bit more beneficial than another type or why have we sort of moved away from doing bands and moved more towards the the bypasses and that sort of thing well I think the reason we've moved away from bands is that having that foreign body proved to be a bit of a problem over time so mm. it, it had the potential to cause some complications where some of the stomach might slip through the band so the band was a soft but still rigid um, twist tie if you like or band sitting around the, the upper part of your stomach. I certainly saw lots of regurgitation with a, a gastric band, which can have negative consequences on your esophagus. Mm. Um, I would say that a lot of people perhaps didn't use their band as well as they could because there are ways that you can avoid some of the problems with a gastric band. But it, it was something that needed some uh, external access to be able to kind of pump up the band with uh, saline. That saline would gradually deflate and more was needed down the track. So I think the newer surgeries that don't require a foreign body are better. The most common of those is sleeve gastrectomy. Mm -hmm. Probably 70% of um, the surgeries occurring in Australia at the moment is uh, sleeve gastrectomy or gastric sleeve. And um, with a gastric sleeve, it's kind of the, the side part of your stomach that's been removed. Um, so you've still got the natural uh, attachment to your esophagus and the natural attachment to your intestine, but the bulk of the stomach has been removed and there's a long staple line. So you've got like a tube shaped stomach. It's reducing the capacity of the stomach quite significantly. And, uh, it gets you down to once, once things have settled down about a one cup, um, serving size for a meal. Um, I think it's quite beneficial to have those natural sphincters. But uh, if people have had a history of uh, reflux mm -hmm. 
then sleeve may not be the best option. You know, any of these surgeries, um, particularly sleeve, gives you a high pressure in your stomach when you start to fill it because it's such a small bag. It's like a balloon. It's a stretchy membrane. And once it's done a bit of stretch, you've got pressure in there. And that pressure can put pressure on that upper sphincter and because I would say it's the weaker of the two. And so reflux can get worse after sleeve gastrectomy. Mm-hmm. With gastric bypass, it's a slightly different setup of the stomach. And in fact, there's a few variations of gastric bypasses developing as well. So, you know, without diagrams, it's hard to, to well explain what the um, what the surgery looks like. But it's a reduced stomach capacity and it's part of the intestine being um bypassed and the amount of the intestine that's bypassed varies with some of the newer surgeries Um, but the more of the bypass that gets uh, the more of the intestine that is bypassed the greater the likelihood of some nutritional problems Um, Mm. just the basic gastric bypass Roux-en-Y gastric bypass has great evidence for um, resolving diabetes so uh, that's where I feel Um, most comfortable. So gastric bypass is, I guess, the surgery of choice where uh, reflux has been a significant problem or where diabetes has been a significant problem. So so that would be the, the two main ones that are occurring at the moment. So interesting, isn't it? And there's so many different models and all the surgeons sort of tend to do them all a little bit differently as well, don't they? Yeah. And uh, so it can be difficult for someone down the track if they're not still in contact with their surgeon and they didn't fully understand what surgery they had to pick up with people several years down the track when they've got some nutritional problems. Um, it can be difficult to figure out you know, what we're actually dealing with. Mm, definitely. Now, you mentioned a couple of, um, I guess, population groups who may benefit from particular types of bariatric surgery. Who else might consider um, potentially having some bariatric surgery um, in the future or down the track or that sort of thing? Who would you say would be um, good candidates to at least have that conversation with a dietitian or their doctor? Yeah, people with um, poor mobility due to their weight. Um, you know, the evidence generally is the older we get, the less likely a weight loss is going to extend our life, but it can certainly improve the quality of our life. It can certainly help a lot of people with particularly bad knees or bad hips um, to be able to live a more full life. Um, Yeah, I would also say that people who are really troubled by constant thoughts of food I wouldn't say that bariatric surgery resolves that forever. It certainly resolves it in the shorter term, which gives us the opportunity to try and use some other strategies uh, to try and uh, avoid that recurring. Um, So it just gives people a bit more clear headspace to be able to deal with other things in their life. So, you know, I certainly see... Um, lots of positives of people being able to think more clearly, um, being able to make better food choices because they haven't got um, hunger and um, food on their mind. I see a lot of great, happy, smiling faces after this surgery. 
Mm, wonderful. And I was mentioning before we started this podcast, I'm a little bit biased because having worked in the hospital for such a long time on the surgical wards in the intensive care unit, I sort of saw the worst of the worst. So when people sort of ask me about bariatric surgery, I'm very sort of on the negative because I've seen so many negative things. But that's why I really loved having you on this podcast, Amanda, because you've seen the flip side of that and you've seen the positives for that as well. And for some people, they've battled with weight loss their entire life. And, um, you know, there definitely are some some positives for bariatric surgery, but also, you know, there are some negatives as well. So starting off with the positives regarding bariatric surgery, we've mentioned a big, big one is with the different type of bariatric surgery, potentially resolving something like diabetes. Any other um, big positives that you would sort of think about with regards to bariatric surgery? Yeah, well, you know, Evidence shows that um, prior to bariatric surgery that the vast majority of people who are at a very high weight, their appetite hormones don't work correctly. So ghrelin, for example, which is the hunger hormone that's produced in your stomach, that um, for people at a very high weight, uh, their hunger hormones are not decreasing. The ghrelin doesn't decrease after a meal, which is what you'd expect and what happens in normal weight people. They have high levels of ghrelin that makes them feel hungry. They eat, the ghrelin comes down, they stop eating. Um, But for people at a very high weight, that's not the case. Whereas after bariatric surgery, it occurs. Now, whether it occurs long-term, I think there needs to be more research. I certainly see appetites returning down the track. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, taking away the some of the issues around eating and appetite really enable people to maybe do some of the psychological work or um, some of the lifestyle work to get things working so that when some of those effects wear off and they can wear off, um, that they've got their lifestyle kind of set up ready for um, for a better outcome. Mm, to focus on a long-term healthy lifestyle. Correct. Yeah. Mm. Now on the flip side of that, um, some negatives regarding bariatric surgery. So I'd love to hear, I guess, from an expert like yourself, what would be some of the downsides? Some, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's, I've paid all this money and having this wonderful surgery, it'll be easy. Whereas I've seen people who have never been able to eat bread or steak again, and they just weren't aware of that, or they just didn't understand that they needed to have fluids for a couple of weeks after, after you know, weeks after the surgery. And these were particularly the ones that were publicly funded. So the government had actually paid for these patients to have that surgery. And unfortunately, there was a huge missing link between what they understood about the surgery and what sort of was actually going to happen as well. But I imagine people who are, um, I guess, funding this themselves, hopefully have a better understanding around, um, I guess, some of the negative things that may happen or some of the things that need to happen post-op as well. Yeah. And I think you've raised something really important. Um, I have great concerns about public or yeah, fully funded bariatric surgery where the candidate does not have the ability to fund their vitamins after surgery. Yeah. Either the hospital needs to take responsibility for that as well, the health system, um, or we need to establish that they have the ability to fund that themselves because otherwise we're setting them up for poor health and different health problems and different complications down the track. So I feel very strongly about that. Um, I think the the other negatives are, well, it's it, 
it is a surgery. Mm. So um, surgeries can have complications and the operation by definition is being done on people who aren't in the best of health to start with. So things can go wrong. So that is what you'll see in the hospitals. You'll see the situations where things have gone wrong and you won't see the 98% of cases that have gone right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's the same thing with um, when you look at bariatric surgery forums. There's a lot of scary discussions on there and, you know, the people for whom things have gone right, they're not even sitting in the forums. They're not, they're not, presenting to the hospital because they've gone on they're leading their life and that the, you know to, to a certain extent they're they're not focused on bariatric surgery again they're focused on living their life but the people who are still very tied into bariatric surgery are the ones for whom uh, things haven't gone so well mm. so I certainly think uh, we need to do the right workup and uh, I do I do also have concerns about um about clinics doing surgery where they haven't necessarily had the right workup. I I feel strongly that um, there are things to be said prior to surgery. And whilst a lot of people feel as though they can just go onto a forum and read that and then they know everything, mm-hmm. um, it's really not the case. Um, yeah. So, you know, the stats only say that there's adverse events in uh, just over 2% of cases or just over 6% of cases where a second surgery is done. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, I'd like to see greater thought put into second surgeries um, because uh, particularly, say, going from a sleeve to a bypass, sometimes those things are necessary because some reflux has developed and that's one of the negatives of of a surgery. There can be problems with, um, with reflux developing. Um, but where reflux isn't the reason for a second surgery, where uh, not enough weight loss is the reason for seeking a second surgery, I'd like to do more investigation about whether we've used the right sur- the first surgery well enough mm-hmm. and whether or not surgery actually resolves the problem that is contributing to the weight in the first place. There might be other and better solutions rather than more surgery. Mm, couldn't agree more. And you touched on a really important point, having the proper workup. And often, and this is me talking from experience about people who had had the free publicly funded one, you know, they'd say to the doctor and the doctors had a certain amount of money from the government and they were kind of not happy to operate on anyone, but they had a set sort of criterion. If you, you know, you match the weight, you match the, I've tried everything, I can't lose weight. They were off to the dietitian, And regardless of what we were saying, those surgeries are happening anyway. And that was the very sad, unfortunately case. And that was one of the things I just didn't love about working in the government was um, they just sort of thought that it would sort of fix everybody. Whereas I was seeing some clients with some deep psychological issues, which I knew were only going to get worse after having something like bariatric surgery. So I personally am of the belief that if somebody is going to think about having this procedure, a dietitian and a psychologist is absolutely the first step and multiple appointments with both of those professions before even considering hitting a surgeon's office. And I imagine that you would probably be um, very much of the same belief, the need to link in with proper dietitians and psychologists before considering the surgery. Am I right? Absolutely. So I see people for a minimum of two visits prior to surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly uh, some of those people I've seen in the past as well. So I've got a history with them and we've worked our way gradually towards surgery. Um, but we've got several psychologists who work in our team as well. 
And I really find them invaluable. You know, they help to identify, document and treat some of the behavioural issues. And some people have had a really hard time in their lives and food has been some kind of coping mechanism and Mm -hmm. the surgery isn't going to wipe away those issues. So um, when you take away food as a coping mechanism, we really need to be finding something else. Um, And that's where sometimes going for a second surgery is really not the solution to a second, um, to, to more coping me- mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are certainly a myriad of potential issues that the psychologist can identify so that as a team, we're better prepared to assist that client from all angles. Mm, and that's the key word there, isn't it? Team, it's not just about the doctor or the surgeon who's doing the surgery. It is really about that multidisciplinary team. And even something like a, a physiotherapist is really important to, to link in with to sort of see, have we explored all different options for exercise? How are we going to be able to try and maintain muscle mass post-op and that sort of thing as well? So really having that whole team behind a patient is the really the kicker for success, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, even, you know, the exercise physiologists tell me that, you know, if you've been very overweight most of your life, your shoulder has never been, uh, your arm has never gone straight down, if you like. It's always been out at an angle to your body. And as your weight comes down, it's moving into a position it's never been before. Mm. And that can lead to risks of injury. So yeah, I see everyone, uh, everyone's role as, um, as as important some more important for for particular clients so it's not the same for everybody mm-hmm. some people don't need a lot a lot of psycho, psychological support um it's more an eating issue that um that isn't related to emotional eating or or some other factor but for others it's a it's the strongest mm. uh, issue mm. again that very individualized approach is so important isn't it Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned emotional eating and that was my next question for you was because I was reading a really interesting statistic when I was sort of researching around bariatric surgery. I read something that said around 30% of people um, at a bariatric surgery clinic have diagnosed binge eating disorder. Now that's something that I think is is super important and where a psychologist would come in very, very helpful. Um, do you think that it is something that needs to be addressed before or even considering having bariatric surgery? Because I imagine having a big surgery like that, and if that's their coping mechanism or they're, they're someone who tends to um, you know, be a binge eater, then it's not going to be very helpful post-surgery, is it? Hmm. And this is something that interests our team very much. Um, I wouldn't say that our stats support the 30% of candidates having binge eating disorder, mm. but it is something that we assess everybody for. And I don't know, I couldn't tell you what our stats are that, that would come from the psychologist. Mm. Um, but I, I have seen that figure published. We certainly go through a full assessment. And if the client is not in a stable situation prior to the surgery, we require that they're assessed and treated by psychiatrists in our area before they're approved for surgery. Mm -hmm. But we're unlikely to reject anyone because of binge eating disorder. They just need to be cleared and and they need to be in some treatment. Um, You know, the reality is that I'm checking on people regularly in that first year and people who have had diagnosed binge eating disorder their desire to binge eat has usually disappeared at that stage. So Mm. it's actually a fantastic opportunity to establish regular eating patterns and psychological treatments addressing the underlying issues. So it's not a contraindication to surgery, Mm -hmm. but it's it's an alert. I think um, the psychologists call it a yellow flag. So it's Mm. not a, there is no surgery. Mm -hmm. It's a, 
right, let's manage this. Yeah. And I like that to say that it's not as clear as it's it's yes or it's no. It's just like, this is a bit of a, a flag for us. Let's do some, some sort of extra management around this because I've certainly seen, as I mentioned, like the worst of the worst, you know, I've seen people post up with quite severe malnutrition who are blending up chicken nuggets and, and ice cream and that sort of thing and getting their binge you know, in through those sort of like liquid calories, like ice creams and thick shakes and that sort of thing, and not being able to get down the small amount of nourishing nutrition that their body needs and developing, you know, severe malnutrition um, deficiencies and that sort of thing. Um, so I think it is it is um, a nice thing to, I guess, address at least beforehand and, and make people aware of some of the risks that may be, you know, post-op. But as you said, each patient could be very different and could go very different ways after surgery as well. Yeah, I, you know, I think that if if something is a, a clear contraindication to surgery and it's not something we can physically see but requires some interview, some report, if if we just said no to this, then there's going to be people who just don't tell us. So we just like to make the path the right path. So there is still a path to surgery. Um, it just means you go through this path so we get the best outcome. Mm, yeah, I like that. Um, and then anything else that people, I guess, would need to consider before um, thinking about a bariatric procedure? We probably haven't talked about, I guess, like downtime afterwards. Like if, if somebody might have three small children running around at home, um, you know, and not really much external help, would that be a would that be a solution for some people? Obviously, you'll need to spend a few days in hospital. Um, you, you're mostly on fluids post-op as well. So anything else that you think, um, I guess, sort of shocks your clients when you're having these conversations around bariatric surgery, things that people might not have even considered? Yeah, I've certainly got a whole checklist of things that um, that I think are important to uh, acknowledge and be able to picture yourself dealing with, you know, how are you going to manage these things post-surgery. Um, so in terms of time off, typically uh, it depends on what sort of work somebody's doing. So you know, there are plenty of self-employed people who take no time off. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a sitting in your chair kind of um, self-employment, they can probably manage that. The key thing is that they need to be drinking uh, very regularly throughout the day. So if you've got a job that stops you from doing that or means that you get absorbed in things and it's not convenient to be drinking, that can be a real problem where we end up with dehydration and ending up in hospital being uh, rehydrated. Um, lifting is something that is uh, discouraged probably for the first four weeks. So again, depending on um, on what's happening there, I would always take people through you know what what the expectations are for the two weeks of fluid regime uh, where you might only be able to drink small amounts at a time, so you need to be drinking quite regularly. Then we've got two weeks of puree, so you need to be able to access the right kind of food. You need for there to be meal breaks. We need to establish the long-term eating patterns from that point in time. Um, those other key things are that you need to take vitamin supplements forever. Mm. And I have had plenty of even medical professionals tell their clients, well, your blood tests have come up fine, so you don't need those supplements. Mm. But in fact, the reason the blood tests have come up fine is because the combination of food and supplements have resulted in that. So we need to continue with them. And so I make that very clear. Um, No pregnancies in the first year. 
mm-hmm. and that's important. So using some kind of um, protection um, for women of um, childbearing age. Mm-hmm. Um, they also need to be committed to having annual blood tests. You know, some nutrients are quite slow to deplete. Mm-hmm. So even though you find things are fine in year one, things can develop down the track. Um, I encourage people to make sure they've got regular contact with their health professionals. The evidence is that the more times you see us, the better the outcome. So there's some magic in what we do or maybe some thought and planning. Uh, And I encourage people to eat regularly throughout the day and I do encourage them to use an external portion control measure because Sometimes it takes a while to figure out what this new, what the messages from this new stomach are. Some people perhaps have never had very good messaging. Mm. Maybe it doesn't exist. Some people perhaps have stretchier stomachs than other people. You know, there there are reasons why some people and some families gain weight easier than others. Mm. Um, and uh, I guess the two key things I see when people have regained weight down the track would be um, grazing or having stretched their stomach pouch. So um, those are two things I I make sure they're well aware of in the beginning that those things will undo the value of having had the surgery. Mm. And I like the point that you mentioned about the external sort of portion control measure because I've certainly seen clients, especially in the very early stages in the first few weeks and months, who would just drink their liquids or whatever they were they were supposed to be having and they would physically vomit because they just didn't get that sensation from the stomach to the brain that I'm full, I've had enough, and it would mm. just come back up everywhere. And that would happen multiple times a day and it would be very difficult to actually get in adequate nutrition when they're constantly vomiting up vomiting not from um you know doing it intentionally just because they didn't they couldn't recognize that hunger fullness mechanism so it is important to as you mentioned um do small things like that to um help your body sort of adjust to the surgery over time isn't it yeah so i like to give them clear guidance to be able to say well this is what i think you should be able to consume Mm -hmm. so if you consume that then you can focus on okay how does this feel and how am i going to recognize this feeling in the future. Mm. And I guess the portions are, are they quite similar depending on obviously the different types of surgeries um, and that sort of thing? Say if somebody had um, the the ruin white, the gastric procedure, um, but somebody was say 300 kilos versus someone else was 100 kilos, that portion size would still be relatively the same, wouldn't it? Well, I encourage them to keep it the same whilst ever they're still aiming to lose weight Mm. because I think it's the balance between getting enough nutrition in and keeping the stomach pouch as small as possible. So I recognise that with the help of the bariatric vitamins, we can get in enough protein, enough essential fatty acids, um, you know, enough low GI carbohydrates by eating about a cupful at meals and having a snack in between. That's usually where things like fruit or nuts or uh, a yogurt or something would come in. There isn't usually room for that at the meal. So mm. Um, by eating about every two and a half hours in the day, we're doing the best thing for getting um, our our nutrients in. Mm. 
Now, you mentioned um, their stomach can stretch over time. And I guess I'm sure that um, our listeners at home, we all know somebody who's, you know, had bariatric surgery in the past where they've initially lost a lot of weight and now they've actually started regaining it or they've just completely stalled in their progress, but they're still, I guess, a fair way away from their goal. Is that because over time the, the stomach does stretch or is it generally in your experience due to, I guess, other lifestyle things that they're doing like excess snacking and that sort of thing? Yeah, it can be a variety. So the two main things I see are the excess snacking in the form of grazing, which is a way to get around the value of of having a, a smaller stomach. And um, to be honest, there's there's value in there being a way around having a smaller stomach because if mm. somebody's diagnosed with cancer or mm. they fall pregnant and we need more calories, mm. I'm confident I can get more in. But there'll be the things that you don't want to be doing if you're actually trying to use this um, this smaller stomach to help um, control your weight. Um, but, yes, stomachs are stretchy, and I don't think they stretch, they stretch by themselves. They stretch from us putting more than a cupful in there. Mm-hmm. If you don't put more than a cupful in there, it'll never hold more than one cup. But if you imagine it's a bit like a balloon, you know, you pick up a brand-new balloon and you blow some air into it, and you hit some resistance. It, it puffs up that first little bit, and then you have to blow harder to expand it further. But the more times you blow it up further, the easier it is to blow it up further. Mm-hmm. And once you've blown it up to quite a size and you let it go back down, it's all puckered, and the elasticity is never quite what it was in the beginning. So by controlling what you put in, that vagus nerve that goes from your stomach to your brain to say that you're satisfied will pick up a good stomach tension. Um, If you're, you know, we all come across times where food tastes divine and we just want a little bit more. You can fit a bit more in against the resistance of expanding that balloon. Um, And the more times you do it, the less sensitive is that feeling of satisfaction. So that's how the stretch happens. We just push the limit, push the limit, and um, then it takes more food for us to feel satisfied. Mm, and I imagine that's sort of how we got into the the problem in the first place and sort of needing bariatric surgery, how, how our weight sort of gradually increased over the years and over the years because as our normal stomach stretches, regardless of surgery, the same sort of thing would happen, wouldn't it? Yeah. So it's not the case for everyone. Not everyone's a large eater. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a component um, of the community, Absolutely. And, you know, there are possibly reasons apart from just the food tastes good. There may be some individual factors where that messaging wasn't very good or they have a particularly stretchy membrane. So, you know, there's a variety of things, I think. Definitely. And then finally, Amanda, um, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, we were using your portion perfection range at the hospital um, for education around clients who had had bariatric surgery and those just working in the space of weight loss as well. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners at home a little bit more about um, your portion perfection range and how it may benefit them at home if they're trying to lose weight in a healthy way, plus minus if they have had bariatric surgery or not. Yeah, thanks. I'd I'd love to. Um, My interest has always been making good decisions easier to follow through with. So Portion Perfection, it's a set of tools that I've developed that show you how much is right to eat because there is a right answer to what the amount of food that matches my energy needs actually looks like. So whether it's for weight loss or for weight maintenance, and I think that's the important part as well, I've made sure I've addressed 
how much is right to eat just for weight maintenance. So you've got your comparison of um, of what we need to go back to after weight loss. Um, so, you know, generally the messages out there are eat less, eat less, eat less. Well, you don't know how much I'm eating. So how do you know I need to eat less and what do I need to eat less of? Mm. So I've created a kit. Uh, there's one for men, women and children. Uh, and there's one for people who have had bariatric surgery. And the tools include portion plates, portion bowls, a pictorial book, recipes, snack containers, and other tools that guide you to the right amount of food with a fairly flexible approach and without that pain and deprivation because all food is covered, whether it's an everyday food or an occasional food. I'm just aiming to show people, you know, what would be the the ideal sort of portion size and spacing and what foods already come in that portion size because that's really key Mm. to being able to stop at that. Mm, to like little individually wrapped chocolates. I imagine are much uh, more conducive to a healthy lifestyle than buying a, a two kilo block of Cadbury. <laughs> exactly. Buying one Freddo frog is the better decision. So yeah, those things just are those subconscious things that help us to follow through. Wonderful. And Amanda, um, if people are interested in your range of portion perfection um, tools, as you mentioned, um, is your website or social media, where can they sort of check them out further and learn a little bit more about them? Yeah, the website's probably the best place to go. And uh, so in Australia, that's greatideas.net.au. If you've got any US listeners, uh, Amazon is Mm -hmm. perhaps the best place to go. And there's a portion perfection um, shop on Amazon. Um, but we're also on Facebook and Instagram as Portion Perfection. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. It's been a wonderful, enlightening discussion. Um, and I'm glad that I've had an expert such as yourself on to to have a little bit of more of a, a deeper chat and discussion around um, some of these important topics as well. Because I don't just want to say, no, it's, it's not a good idea because for some people it might be a great option, but for other people it might not be the option for them. So I really think, as always, when I get my experts on this podcast, having that individualized approach is so important as well. And then finally, um, if there are some listeners at home who are considering this and who would like Love to chat to you. I couldn't recommend you and your team enough. So how would our listeners, um, and there are many listeners all around the world as well. So do you do online consultations? Because I know you're based near the Gold Coast, but if somebody say in the US or somewhere in the UK, would you be able to service them as well and offer them appointments? Absolutely. Um, the, the UK gets particularly difficult in terms of time zones, mm. but um, certainly throughout Australia, the, um, the consulting side of the business, you can access through that same website. Um, from further afield, uh, it's worthwhile using the tools and, uh, you know, there are still ways that we can support people through the, the um, Facebook site and we're also developing some courses that might be useful in terms of creating that community. Wonderful. So our listeners at home, the, the probably the best option for you is greatideas.net.au and you'll find um, the consultations with Amanda and her team on there plus the, the Portion Perfection range as well. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, we will catch you in the very next podcast.